You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Clint Wright. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday's service now. For the life that God is leading us to. You, at that moment, you have the Spirit of God living in you, the same Spirit I do. You have the Word of God and you have God's people. Meaning we have everything we need for the Christian life. It doesn't mean we know everything there is to know or we get it right, but we have all the resources that we need, especially when it comes to God's Word. We have everything we need to read it, to understand it, and even to apply it. But I know it can be intimidating at times, maybe overwhelming. So I want to prove it today. Uh, because this is going to be a little bit more of a teaching thing. Uh, instead of me just preaching. Preaching is like having a conversation with yourself. Uh, but teaching is more interactive. So on the end of every aisle is a little note card. And everyone needs one. So I'm going to give you a minute. You can get a little loud, a little restless. You can move. And you're going to need a pen. So go through your mom's purse or somebody else's purse. Uh, there's some on the back table. So I'm going to give you just a couple of minutes to move. Get that piece of paper uh, and a pen. Because I want to prove to us that we can all do this. And as you're doing that, I want you to think about this question. What is the most important thing about you? Somebody was to stop you, what would be, and ask you, what is the most important thing about you? Would it be your family, your job, uh, your finances, or some accomplishment? What would be the most important thing about you? Well, here is the answer. The most important thing about you and the most important thing about me is this. It's what we believe about Christ. There's nothing else that is more important than that right there. And this, this week, this has really come to life for me because I've been studying Mark chapter 10 for the next or last several weeks. And listen to just what we're going to, I almost say had to, get to talk about today. We're going to talk about divorce. That's going to be fun. We're going to talk about children, the rich young ruler. Jesus is going to foretell his death. James and John are going to ask for places of honor. And then Jesus will heal Bartimaeus. And what a group of misfit toys. I have spent the last several weeks trying to find out, okay, what is it that ties all of these together? And I don't know. I still can't find it. And if you can, email me this week. Call me to let me know. How do all of these Band of misfit toys, it seems like. How do they all fit together? Because I couldn't find it. Then I kept asking the question, why would Mark do this? Mark wasn't a first eyewitness. He probably hears from Peter. He hears all these things going on. And in this chapter, he puts all of these together. But then I turned to chapter 11. And notice what happens next week for us as we're walking through this. This is the triumphal entry next week where Jesus will come into Jerusalem for the very last time. Where the crowds will be shouting, Hosanna, uh, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And less than a week later, many of those will be yelling, crucify him. 
So I think this is why Mark seems to put this band of misfit toys, these six very different experiences together right before Jesus' final journey into Jerusalem. It's because the most important thing about those disciples and those that are reading this for the first time from Mark, the most important thing about them is what they believe about Jesus. But belief is only as strong as it is to be tested. So beginning in chapter 11, everything that they thought they knew and believed about Jesus is about to be tested. And so I think that's why Mark is putting these misfit experiences together. It's because there is something that ties them all together. And that is they all are telling us something about Jesus to believe. So here's where you, I need you involved today. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to read each of the experiences. I'll give you a little bit of background. And then I want you to write down what you think this is saying that you need to believe about Jesus. And if I get brave enough, I might ask for some of you to give me some feedback on that. But my fear is nobody says anything. And then I will give you what I wrote down. So here we go. The very first one, Mark chapter 10, where Jesus is going to be teaching on divorce. I'll read the first uh, 11, 12 verses here. It says, And he left there, so he was in the north, and he went through the region of Judea in the north, beyond the Jordan. So he, he goes to the east of the Jordan River uh, because Samaria will not let him pass through there. And the crowds gathered to him again, and again as was the custom, he taught. So he's teaching something, and Mark doesn't tell us what it is. But then in verse 2, the Pharisees come up in order to test him, and they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he said to them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And in the house, the disciples later, they asked him again about this matter. They wanted to know more, and he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So here's some background. Here's some context. The Pharisees are not looking for truth here. It's not like they come in and say, Jesus, we've been debating this for years. And we just need you to please help us understand it. No, Mark even tells us that this is a trap. Because what we have to understand is what's going on during this time. And in this time, there were two camps of people. There, there were Republicans and Democrats. Now, I'm just teasing. There were really two groups within the, the teaching, the Pharisees, that followed two different fields of study. One of them, well, let's call him Team Shimei. And Team Shimei, this man was a, a crusty, uh, rigid teacher. He advocated for an extremely uh, disciplined 
uh, view and interpretation of the law. He wanted to take every word on its face value and apply it to the, the hardest, the, the most strenuous way possible. The problem is only the best of the best could live up to this. And in fact, when you read history, you realize he was just doing this to advance his really own personal and even political agendas. So that's team number one. Well, then there's another team, Team Hillel. And this guy, he was, he was winsome. He was um, engaging. In fact, he was known for how kind he was to people. So what does he do? He finds ways to interpret scripture in a way that allows uh, almost anything you need it to be. So under his team, you could divorce your wife for almost any reason. If she burned your dinner, um, if she was disrespectful to you, um, if you found someone more attractive, it was allowed under his teaching. So you have these two people, they're coming in these groups and what they really want to know is, Jesus, who are you going to? To decide with. They really don't know what he thinks about divorce. So notice what Jesus does. Because the law didn't ban divorce altogether. Both of these teams. Both of these schools. They took this as a sign of God's approval. So what does Jesus do? He takes them all the way back to Genesis. Where God ordained marriage. And established the parameters for it. God determined that one man and one woman, what did it say? They shall leave their families and the two shall become one flesh. That he's showing that the two were to become indivisible. Jesus is showing and declaring that marriage is an act of God, not the courts and not society or whoever else it might be. That it is a union entered in by two people, but it is sealed in heaven. He also is showing them that marriage demands total commitment. But the key is verse 5. Notice they're wanting this debate to be settled, and Jesus goes right to the center of it in verse 5. He says, No, this was never God's plan. But in verse 5, he tells us it was only because of the hardness of their hearts. That this was even allowed. He's showing that the real issue is their heart. So here's what I want you to do. Take that story. Take that experience. What is this saying to you about what you need to believe about Jesus? I'll give you just a couple of seconds. What is it saying about Jesus and what you need to believe about him? Where he's teaching on divorce and this debate's going on and Jesus comes in and totally turns it upside down to show them something else. What is this saying to you about who Jesus is and what we need to believe about him? Okay, here's what I wrote. I wrote, Jesus, he's after our hearts. And I wrote down, even mine. That without our hearts, he will never have our obedience. And Christ-like living starts with a heart that is captivated by him. All right, I'm going to take a chance on you. All right, what did you write down? What was it that you said 
This is something that is important about Jesus and something I need to believe about him. Anyone brave enough? Steve, they're leaving me hanging. I told you it happened. Steve can't hear me. Anybody? Come on. All right, Bobby. Oh, great. He establishes covenants. There's several of them. That he's the one that directs it all. Anybody else? One more. Yeah. And that we that is true about him, and we need to believe that. Now, right, here's your second one. Jesus is going to bring the children close in verse 13. So he's traveling and he's probably now on the east side of the Jordan and he's going to be heading towards Jericho on his way to Jerusalem. He stops and they're bringing children to him that he might touch them. And notice what the disciples are doing. The disciples begin to rebuke them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and he said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them for such belongs to the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God is like a child shall not enter it. And he took them into his arms and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. So what these parents are doing, they're bringing their children to Jesus. And what they were seeking is they wanted him to bless them. So they start bringing all these kids to once these blessings. And notice what it does to the disciples. It irritates them. Well, why is that? Well, it's how they viewed children. Children in this time were looked at as unimportant. They, a lot of times, were just a resource. In fact, it wasn't until uh, 385 AD that it wasn't against the law. Even in the Roman Empire, if you had a child you didn't want, you just left them out in the woods. It wasn't until three or 345 AD when Christianity became the dominant religion. So these children are being brought to Jesus and Jesus stops and says, Whoa, guys, what are you doing? Let these children come to me. Do not hinder them. In fact, you must become like them to enter into it. So he takes them into his arms, lays his hands on them, and he blesses them. So he goes from divorce to this. So what does this say about who Jesus is? What is this saying that we need to believe about Jesus? What, four little verses, a quick little snapshot of something that happens. It was important enough that Mark hears it and he records it. What is this saying about who Jesus is? And most importantly, what we need to believe about him. All right, anybody else brave enough? That was pretty good. Two for two. Anybody else? Come on, one. Just ask him at Lynn. Yeah. Okay, here's what I wrote. Not that one is right, one is wrong. I think we could see a hundred things about who Jesus is. Here's what I wrote. No one is invaluable to Jesus. And then I wrote down... Not even me. That no one is invaluable to him. Even children that were seen as unimportant because these disciples were thinking, how are these children advancing why Jesus had come? 
that belief's about to be challenged in just a few days. Well, then he gets into a longer section. Here's number three, a longer experience. One you might have heard before, Jesus and the rich young ruler. Now, as he's setting out on his journey, a man ran up. And he knelt down before him and he asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. In fact, he's claiming his deity. You know the commandments. Notice what he says. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all of these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go. So all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by this saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and he said to the disciples, how difficult will it be for those who have wealth to enter into the kingdom of God? And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for the camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and they said to him, Then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. And Peter began to say to him, See, we've left everything to follow you. And Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mothers or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So there's a couple of things to know. First of all, Jesus is not saying that to have eternal life that you really, literally have to go and give everything that you have away. He's not saying that you earn salvation by living in poverty. In fact, Jesus, he's not even condemning wealth because we know people like Abraham and Boaz and Job, they were wealthy people. But Jesus is saying something and showing us something important. And it's in the background of this rich, rich young ruler. He was a natural born Jew. Their idea of, of theology was this, is that if you were born a Jew, that you naturally inherited eternal life, but it was then only yours to keep. And you kept it by doing all the right things, that salvation was theirs to lose, but only if they failed to do good. And what they were doing, they were going back to Deuteronomy chapter 30. Where they saw this promise that God made to Israel. But what they missed in this, this was a promise that dealt with what we know as God's land covenant. 
that he required obedience to the law as a condition for remaining in Canaan and receiving protection from other people from outside. That God never intended for them to read this and apply it as a standard for salvation because that's why he gave them the temple and the sacrifices. But they missed it. But I want you to notice where Jesus starts with this rich young ruler in verse 19. He comes to him and he says, what must I do? And Jesus begins in the Ten Commandments. They're really broken up into two sections. And notice where Jesus begins. He begins citing the number of commandments, what we refer to as the second table. These are the ones that deal with our relationships with each other. In fact, I think he started with the easy ones. Because even those that were outside of God's people that were pagans would sometimes keep these just out of their their civic duty and, and loyalty about how we are to treat one another. I'm not supposed to steal from you and you're not supposed to lie for me. And that's where Jesus starts. Because notice he doesn't start with the other ones that are much harder that govern how we relate to God. Because those are the commandments that can only be kept by someone whose heart has been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. But Jesus doesn't start there. So this rich young ruler, when he hears this, man, he is so excited. He's on cloud nine. He says, man, I have kept these since I was a young kid. But at this point, I would expect Jesus to look at him and say, but friend, listen, you're mistaken. You, you haven't kept these even since you got up this morning. It's obvious this rich young ruler, he isn't familiar with Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount where he takes things like, well, adultery, I haven't done that, but if you have lusted after a woman, yes, you have. Well, I haven't murdered. Well, if you've hated, then yes, you have. Jesus is revealing that the demands of God's law go far deeper than just a simple outward obedience. But this rich young ruler, he didn't understand that. He only had this kind of superficial understanding of what the law meant. That he's showing us that this rich young ruler was harboring this thing in his heart that he thought he could do this. He thought his goodness was enough to earn his way to heaven. But here's the most shocking part for me. That right after that, Jesus doesn't even begin by choosing to show this rich young ruler, all of his faulty misunderstandings. Because it's this little phrase that we often skip over in verse 21. This man completely misunderstands. He doesn't get it. But notice what Jesus does in verse 21. And Jesus, looking at him, he loved him. That Jesus is showing this ultimate compassion on this rich young ruler. Before he even showed the rich young ruler this faulty misunderstanding, he looked at him, he noticed him, and he loved him. So what is Jesus trying to show him? That giving away all he owned required a complete overhaul of his theology. To give away all of his possessions and all that he had and to become a poor person. It would require that he admit the unworthiness of all of his goodness. 
that was something this man was absolutely not willing to do. So I wrote for myself that Jesus always demands that those who come to him, they put away all of their gods. Whether it's money, possessions, pride, power, people, passions, requires all of that to be laid down. All right, so what is this saying about who Jesus is? And what is this saying that you need to believe about him? In the story of the rich young ruler, what is God saying to you through his word? This is who my son is. And this is what you need to believe about him. For time's sake, here's what I wrote. Jesus is worth more than anything. And I wrote down even me. That Jesus is worth more than anything. Now, here's your next one. This is going to be the third time that Jesus does this. So they're on the road and notice where they're going. They're headed to Jerusalem. And Jesus knows this is the final time. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, and I believe he stopped, and I believe that they could see the holy city. And he said, We're going there, we're going to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him. And spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Because Jesus knows this time that he is going to walk into Jerusalem. He will walk out bearing a cross. And for the third time, he is foretelling his death to his disciples. He's telling them that death is awaiting me, and he knew it. That he knows the disciples that have been following him for these last several years, that their faith and belief is about to be tested like no other time. So what is Jesus, or what is the scripture saying about who Jesus is to you? What is he saying that you need to believe about Jesus? Take a second and write something down. In those few verses where Jesus foretells his death, what is this saying about him? And what do you need to believe about that? Well, here's what I wrote. Jesus is ultimately committed even more than I am. That he is ultimately committed. So then he's going to jump ahead to verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder, they came up to him saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. You ever had your kid ask that, Mom or Dad? Hey, I want to ask you a question, but you promise to say yes. And he said to them, 
What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one on your right hand and one on your left hand in your glory. And Jesus said to them, Oh, sons of thunder, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with a baptism with which I'm baptized? And they said to him, We are able. Oh, did they really understand? And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left, it is not mine to grant. But it is one of those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant about James and John. So now they're upset. And Jesus called to them and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And with their great ones, authority, exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man, and here is our verse, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life for a ransom for many. So here is Jesus about to enter Jerusalem for the last time. He tells us he'll be falsely accused, he'll be ridiculed, humiliated, spit on, beaten, whipped, and crucified on the cross. And in the next breath, James and John ask for a place of honor. What's fascinating to me about this experience is not what is there, but what is not there. You notice that Jesus never gets on to them. He never rebukes them. And I believe it is because he is showing them something more important than honor. It is servanthood. The guys, I know what you're after. I know you think it seems right to be in my glory, to be on my right and my left. But there is something more important than honor. And it's to learn to be a servant. So in that one, what is this saying to you about who Jesus is? Or what is it saying that you today need to believe about him? What is that experience saying? So here's the last, or here's what I said. I almost forgot. That Jesus is the humblest of servants. And then I wrote, even to me. So here's the last one. Oh, blind Bartimaeus. So they finally make it into Jericho. And as they were leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, he was sitting by the roadside. When he heard that the Jesus of Nazareth, he began crying out saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be quiet, to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and he said, call him. And they called the blind beggar saying to him, take heart, get up. He is calling you. 
Oh, I love this. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and he came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. That's important. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and he followed him on the way. Man, do you see Bartimaeus' just determination that he had a need and he believed the only one in the world that could help him was now in front of him. But to Bartimaeus, he thought this was his most important need and I don't blame him. Who wouldn't want to see? But Jesus knew differently. Because notice what Jesus says in verse 52. Go your way. Your faith has made you well. That little phrase, made you well, it literally means I save. And I believe in this moment, this man found something even more important than sight. He found eternity. Because notice what happens. Jesus tells him, get up and go on your way. But what does he do? It says he recovered his sight and he followed him. Because when you truly meet Jesus, you don't want to be with anyone else. Nothing else mattered. I'm sure he had other things he wanted to do, things he wanted to go see for the very first time, things he needed to do, people he wanted to go talk to. But what does he do? He begins to follow. So what is this saying that you need to believe about Jesus? Take a second and write that down. Through blind Bartimaeus, what does God want you to know and believe about his son? And here's what I wrote. Jesus is worthy of of our following, even mine. So this morning, I want you to know that what you believe about Jesus is the most important thing about you. Nothing else compares. But belief is only as strong as it's been tested. And I think that's why Mark puts these here together. It's because of what is about to happen over the next several days. And I can't wait for us to walk through those. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to look at your six statements. And I want you to do so. I want you to read them real quick. And I want you to pick one of those. What right now would you say where you are in your stage of life? What's going on? Which one of those is the hardest statements for you to really believe right now? Put a star by it or circle it. Which one of those is the hardest for you to believe right now? And here's what I put. Jesus is worth more than anything. Because I find myself drawn to so many other things that crowd him out. And I know I could say I believe it a thousand times. But in reality... It doesn't seem that that's always the case, that I actually believe that. 
that he is worth more than anything. So I hope you have yours. And here's what I want you to do. Here's your homework. First of all, I want you to spend this week praying about that. Do like I'm going to do. Confess it each and every morning and ask for help. Because you have everything that you need for this life that God is calling to. You have everything that you need. I have everything that I need. And here's number two. Find someone to share yours with this week. Take a day. Take two. Take three. Pray about it. Confess it. Ask for help. But find someone. And say, let me share with you something I did this week. Let me share with you something God has been teaching me that this is hard for me to believe right now and share that with someone. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. If you have questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.